Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE review. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But again, you're now tuned into our OITE slash our board reviews featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. It, the, the treatment for DVT doesn't stop at the mechanical um, uh, means. What are some of the pharmacologic anticoagulants used in orthopedic surgery? Oh, the fun stuff. So um, very commonly used is aspirin, which um, many of us know about. The other ones, you can have heparin, which a lot of us know about it as well. Warfarin, which is otherwise known as Coumadin. And then some are other things like Fondoparinols, um, Rivaroxaban, and um, Dabitrogen. I always mess this word, my pronouncing of this word up. I don't know why. There are always certain words that just get me every time. But it's Dabigetran. Uh, um <laughs> I, I don't know. Like you can, I can say like osteochondral, like all these other complex words, but somehow that gets me up every time. Um, but you know, going forward, what is the mechanism of action for aspirin? Um, yes, these the mechanism of action questions are critical for OITE yep. and ABOS. So, um, if you're going to pick up anything, pay attention to the next. I don't know, half hour that we have left in this. And, and I think you'll, you'll score a few points on this test, but uh, aspirin, uh, the key component is that it's irreversible Cox inhibition. And what that does is it decreases thromboxane and prostaglandin production. Um, they'll ask it several ways. It may just be as direct as irreversible Cox inhibition, or they'll say um, irreversibly, uh, decreases uh, thromboxane production. And those are two ways to, to answer that question. So um, just just by knowing these mechanism of actions kind of backward and forward will help you um, move forward. And then um, one thing, uh, a little bit of a side note, but I uh, uh, it is a question that has come up and has actually been debated hotly on orthobullets. I've recently noticed, but um, what is the mechanism of action of acetaminophen? Yeah, so acetaminophen is going to inhibit prostaglandin E2 through IL-1. So um, big things to know, again, acetaminophen is going to inhibit prostaglandin E2 through IL-1. Uh, it is not the, the typical and said that you think of it as uh, it is is not a irreversible cox inhibitor like aspirin is and again acetaminophen is going to inhibit prostaglandin e2 through il1 or interleukin 1 now what is the mechanism of action of heparin uh, heparin will um, kind of improve or enhance uh, the activity of antithrombin 3 to inhibit things like uh, factor 2A, 9A, uh, 10A, uh, 12A, and it also binds to platelet factor 4, um, which unfortunately is the reason for uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Um, but the, uh, the key things are uh, it enhances the ability of antithrombin 3 
And I've, I've seen it asked that it will um, enhance the inhibition of factor 2A, which is technically true because antithrombin 3 is what inhibits factor 2A. Uh, so uh, again, knowing this Tricksters. forward and backward, yeah, is going gonna, is gonna to help you out. So heparin enhances ability of antithrombin 3. Um, it can come in IV and sub-Q forms. Uh, the IV form is typically used for uh, in-hospital uh, acute like pulmonary embolism or acute DVT uh, treatment, whereas the sub-Q forms are used more as a DVT prophylaxis or a bridge to uh, warfarin once warfarin meets its INR uh, level. Um, but let's say... You have a patient who's on heparin, but you get Q6 hemoglobins, and now they've gone from 12 down to 7.5, and you think it's due to uh, heparin. What are you going to give to reverse that heparin activity? Yeah, key thing you just said is that heparin is reversible, because we'll talk in a bit about some things that aren't reversible, but for the reversible agent for heparin is going to be protamine sulfate, so... I mean, that's just something you got to know. Um, reversal agent for heparin is protamine sulfate. Uh, and I definitely like what you mentioned there a little bit earlier about um, heparin binding to platelet factor four, which can lead to heparin induced thrombocytopenia. So again, if you're, you know, in an inpatient setting and getting daily labs on patients and you see that, you know, one day their platelets are 250,000 and then like a day or two after that, you see it's like 100,000, you know, that's one of the things you need to kind of start to think about and have on your differential. So um, just getting all these labs in the morning time and not really looking and paying attention and comparing them to the labs the day prior uh, isn't good. You need to you need to definitely keep an eye on that, especially when we're giving these patients all these different medications. Uh, now, what's the difference between heparin and low molecular weight heparin, which you could kind of think about what it is just from the names, but what's the difference between heparin and low molecular weight heparin? So low molecular weight uh, heparin still acts through antithrombin three, um, and it, it its key component is to block factor ten a uh, through that antithrombin three and two a inhibition, or two a is also known as thrombin. Um, it is only sub Q administration, so there's no IV form of low molecular weight heparin, and uh, the benefits of it is there's no need for monitoring as we'll see with Coumadin. And as you all know, just clearly by going through medical school that, that Coumadin needs uh, very frequent lab checks because you don't want your INR to be too high or too low, but low molecular weight heparin does not need monitoring. Uh, it is reversible again with that protamine sulfate and it is, uh, you can use it in those with renal insufficiency, but uh, you do have to decrease the dose as it uh, is renally excreted. Uh, so again, it blocks 10A through antithrombin 3 and 2A. So, uh, but I, I think that that low molecular weight heparin is uh, probably more commonly used in the hospital setting um, than true heparin, but uh, there is a difference between those two. And then uh, you mentioned a, a drug called Fonda Perinux, or I think it's also called Arixtra uh, as the brand name. But what is the mechanism of action of Fonda Perinux? 
Yeah, so this is also going to work through antithrombin 3, but it's going to irreversibly bind factor 10A through antithrombin 3. So, you know, we mentioned earlier that the uh, low molecular weight heparin uh, and, uh, and heparin are, are reversible. So they reversibly uh, inhibit factors, you know, 2A um, through antithrombin 3, but fondoparinox or parano is going to irreversibly uh, bind factor 10A through antithrombin 3. And there is no antidote. And you, so it kind of has a, a little bit of a higher bleeding risk than low molecular weight heparin. So again, fondoparinox um, irreversibly binds uh, factor 10A through antithrombin 3. There's no antidote and there's a higher bleeding risk than with low molecular weight heparin. Yeah. One of the uh, ways I, I remember uh, the fondoparinox is the last four letters are I-N-U-X. And then there's in, uh, which I equate to indirect inhibition mm. because there's indirect inhibition of X or 10 uh, through antithrombin 3. So fondoparinux is an indirect 10A inhibitor because of antithrombin 3. But as we'll see here shortly, there are direct 10A inhibitor. So that's how you, I differentiate between the two as an indirect or a direct 10A inhibitors. Yeah, I'm liking all these pearls. It's like the um, the pearl that you gave for remembering the bisphosphonates with the non-nitrogen and the um, and the nitrogen containing uh, uh, phosphates when you when you talked about non having three letters and it was, it was good. It was good. So that's yep. another good uh, good tip here for fondoparinox. I'm uh, full what, of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, let 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 us all know them. You know, I again, I still learn stuff from from this and hearing you talk. So you know, I'm, I'm learning stuff all the time. Um, what's the mechanism of action for uh, of of rivaroxaban and all the other exabans, um, like i.e. like a pixaban and all these other ones that have xa in the middle of their name? Yep. So again, just like I used in and x for fondoparinux. Uh, if you look at the uh, rivaroxaban or apixaban, um, they have XA, so they are 10A, and then ban, they ban 10A from working. So they are direct 10A inhibitors. Uh, the nice part about them is they are oral medications. And uh, when you tell a patient after surgery that for the next four weeks, they have to stab their skin and inject a medication into their belly. Uh, yeah. Some of them are fine with it. They're like, okay, cool. That's fine. Others will look at you like that is the most horrendous thing that could ever happen. And so yeah. keeping in mind that these uh, Zabans or the Rivaroxaban or a Pixaban are oral medications is uh, highly beneficial for them. Uh, side note for real life practice is I believe Rivaroxaban is a little bit more expensive than low molecular weight heparin. So um, not all yeah. insurances will cover it to the same degree. So they might have to pay a little bit more out of pocket. But if that makes them feel more comfortable or they're going to actually be diligent with taking it, then it might be better off for them. Um, but again, uh, they do have a little bit higher bleeding risk than low molecular weight heparin, not so high that they don't get prescribed, but, um, it is, it is higher, uh, as has been shown in, in a few studies. Um, but, uh, what is, uh, the antidote for apixaban? 
Yeah, so this is this medication called Indexanet, so A-N-D-E-X-A-N-E-T. And how this works is it's going to be a decoy recombinant factor XA molecule. So it's going to go and in, 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 in bind to this decoy um, 10A molecule instead of the, the real 10A molecule. So Indexanet is going to be the antidote for apixaban. And just to recap, uh, the reversal agent for heparin is going to be protamine sulfate. And the one that does not have an antidote is going to be fondoparinox. Um, and so continuing on, um, what is the, and, and this is one of the things like I was reading up, I was like, oh yeah, this is a thing. I forgot about this. Um, but what is the mechanism of action of herudin? Uh, this is kind of that thing that's isolated from leech glands, from leech glands. Yeah, this is what the herudin is what you rely on um, if you're having like a post-flap uh, venous stasis. Uh, and there are places still where you can prescribe leeches to to attach to certain sites. So that, scary. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I don't know exactly so how to get it done, but I can't it, see it. Is, it is still done to this day. And uh, you're, you're relying on the herudin from the leeches to thin the blood and, and reduce that kind of venous uh, outflow uh, hypertension. But the herudin is a direct thrombin 2A inhibitor. And um, the, the ones that we uh, kind of are that are similar to herudin or their cloned herudin recombinant proteins are ones like dabigatran or pradaxa, which is PO, and then desirudin, which sounds like herudin or Revask. Um, I've seen dabigatran or Pradaxa used more than Revask out in practice, but uh, uh, those are the ones that are the direct uh, thrombin 2A inhibitors. So yeah. uh, I think dabigatran and desirudin as direct thrombin 2A inhibitors. Um, yeah, all those ones are indirect. Like through antithrombin three, all the other ones are like indirect. They're like through antithrombin three or something like that. You know, yes, exactly. Yeah, like like directly. Heparin. And uh, what is the reversal agent for these uh, herudin class, the dabigatrans and the desirudin? Yeah, so this is a a, a medication called um, idarzuximab. So I D A R U C I Z A M A B. So that is a reversal agent, again, MAB, monoclonal antibody. Um, but idarizuzumab is the reversal agent for this, these herudins, which is, again, Pradoxa or Dabigatraban uh, and Desirudin. Um, one of the things that we hadn't covered that we might as well just touch base on is Coumadin or Warfarin. So what is the mechanism of action for Warfarin? Uh, this will show up at one point during your five years. Uh, and that is a vitamin K epoxide reductase inhibitor, um, which uh, really that's just a fancy word for saying that it um, prevents vitamin K gamma carboxylation, which is another fancy term for it decreases production of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Um, those are the, the ways that they will test you. Um, they'll either talk about Coumadin as being a vitamin K epoxide reductase inhibitor. They'll either ask you uh, 
what type of carboxylation it prevents, and that's vitamin K gamma carboxylation, or they'll ask what uh, clotting factor products are decreased by the administration of this medication. And again, those are two, seven, nine, and 10. Um, and then again, uh, like I talked about before, um, you do have to monitor this. Uh, you do have to make dietary modifications to maintain therapeutic levels. And it's really not uncommon for somebody uh, to require a therapeutic level of 2.5 to 3.5, but they'll show up at 1.4 or 5. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, these these patients need to understand the medication that they're on. They need to understand exactly what they're getting themselves into when they start this medication. And uh, it's the main reason why I decided to go with a uh, bovine tissue valve for my aortic valve replacement rather than a mechanical valve because I didn't want to mm. be on warfarin. So mm. uh, interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. Um, mm. And there's, there's kind of a reversal. I guess there's no true reversal agent for Coumadin that reduces the actual effects of Coumadin on vitamin K epoxide reductase. But let's say a patient, a trauma patient comes in or, or one of your elective cases um, has a INR of 5.5. What's one of the first things you can give them to help bring that INR down? Yeah, you can give them FFP, fresh frozen plasma. Um, yeah, but like you were saying, not, it's not like a real true, true reversal agent for Coumadin, but that's one of the things that you can do uh, is give some fresh frozen uh, plasma. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's some of the people that are listening to this that are on a plane. I was on a plane earlier today on my way back here from, from a course, uh, from a total shoulder course. And so do flyers or, you know, air airplane passengers, however you want to word it, have an increased risk of a thrombolic, uh, thromboembolic event compared to non-flyers? I feel like this is always, I don't know if this is always a test question, but it's something that like people generally ask about and stuff. So do I have an increased thromboembolic risk compared to non-flyers? Knock on wood. Hopefully this never happens, but knock on wood. You do. You have about eight times the risk of myself <laughs> who is walking around uh, doing Halloween stuff. So you're totally screwed, buddy. Um, but no, it's, uh, and for some reason, they always talk about flying. Um, and, and I don't know if it has to do with the pressurization of the cabin uh, being up uh, at high elevations in a, in an airplane, but they hardly ever talk about like truckers or uh, going on a road trip or extreme sedentary lifestyle like if you sit at a desk for eight hours i don't see how that's really that different than sitting on a plane for four or five hours at a time and so um when you all open your little safety brochures when the stewardess or uh, stewards are going over the uh safety precautions there's always that little section that gives you exercises to do while you're on the plane um, those actually are really designed to prevent these thromboembolic events because people on airplanes are at an increased risk. And um, you don't necessarily have to pop a Coumadin as you get bored of plane, <laughs> but 
Um, you uh, definitely need to counsel patients because, I mean, now that uh, airports and airlines and everything else are starting to really open back up because of COVID and all of that, I mean, there's more often than not, I mean, you'll have patients say, hey, I'm getting my total knee done uh, on November 10th. Is it okay for me to fly two weeks later to go and visit my family? And it's like, well, yes, but you have to notify them that they are at an increased risk and that they do have to um, be cognizant of that. And they do have to take their uh, medications to help prevent these DVTs. So uh, that was just a long go around for, yes, <laughs> uh, airplane passengers are at an increased risk for thromboembolic events. And um, what's something that you should consider? You have a 25-year-old guy comes in, he's got right upper extremity pain, swelling, um, dilated veins, but not because he just got a sick pump at the uh, gym and he has a feeling of arm heaviness. Yeah, so this one of the things you want to um, think about is like an upper extremity client and athlete, and and another uh, term for this is called effort thrombosis or Paget Schroeder's syndrome, which I I didn't hear, never heard of before. Um, sitting down and you know reading all these notes and these different sources and stuff, and trying to come up with uh, you know these questions for this this review. But I never heard of this. But well, obviously I've heard of an upper extremity clot and athlete, but I never heard of like Paget Shorter syndrome. Um, but anyways, yeah. So if you have this twenty five or a young athlete um, that has pain, a bunch of dilated um, veins, their arms feel heavy. That may be the main thing that they complain of. Uh, they can have an upper extremity clot. You know, you diagnose this with an ultrasound. And the treatment for this is a lot different. You know, th this patient may need a thoracic outlet decompression, depending on kind of what um, what some of the etiologies are behind this. But, you know, definitely go and look up paget Schroeder syndrome and read up on that. Um, but that's one of the things you need to have on, on your differential diagnosis. Uh, another thing that we tend to give a lot, or I guess it depends on what the case is, but TXA or transexemic acid, um, what is the mechanism for tran, uh, transexemic acid? So yeah, TXA is um, basically, it's a synthetic lysine analog. And what that means in clinical practice is that it's a competitive inhibitor of plasminogen activation. And what um, uh, plasminogen is, is a, it uh, prevents plasminogen from being activated and plasmin and turning into plasmin, where plasmin dissolves fibrin clots. So it's it's a way for us to decrease the amount of bleeding during surgical intervention. Um, but the nice part about it is that it really hasn't been shown to increase the incidence of DVTs. And so you give a dose prior to incision and you give a dose in the PACU. And uh, what it does is it really just prevents that plasmin from dissolving uh, fibrin clots that are formed during surgery and can cause post-op hematomas, post-op seromas, and, and, and really it's designed to prevent uh, post-op anemia um, by, by bleeding. So 
Uh, that's the mechanism of action of TXA. And a few more kind of uh, things that we decided to throw in here in terms of uh, imaging <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah, random questions. Uh, how, how exactly does a bone scan work? Yeah, I, I, now thinking about it, I'm not even sure why I put these here, but why not? We'll just go ahead and go over yeah. these last two. Um, so these bone scans, you have like a technetium-99 phosphate complex. And what this complex does or how it works is it's absorbed onto hydroxyapatite crystals in the bone. So if you get these scans, uh, you know, you'll see any places where there's bone or act bone activity, um, these places will light up. Or so this is going to show like increased blood flow and activity to those areas. So if there's a trauma um, to a certain area, and so there's going to be increased um, osteoblasts and activity over there. If there's an infection or if there's a neoplasm, you know, these are all things where there's, you know, kind of some hyperactive bone or bone is working a little bit more and, uh, and, and it'll get uptake, uh, more uptake for these, uh, for these, uh, these complexes. And um, what are some areas where a bone scan may be of use? Uh, the most important thing, because tumor is always the most important part of uh, orthopedic surgery, is that it can yes. be used in, in evaluation of uh, metastatic disease. It's part of that. Um, uh, and we will cover this much more in the pathology section. But briefly, let's say you have a, a pathologic humerus fracture without a known primary you're going to get a CT scan of chest, abdomen, pelvis, and a bone scan. That's kind of part of that classic workup of a bone metastatic disease because you want to see if the metastatic disease is elsewhere in the body. Um, but it also can be used, just like you said, because it um, shows areas of increased blood flow and activity. Uh, the downside to it is that it's not very specific. So right. Uh, it, it does show up with other things, not just neoplastic disease, but also osteomyelitis. If you have an active uh, kind of flared up osteomyelitis, it'll show up. Um, it can show up in uh, AVN. Uh, and, and it can also show up in uh, total hip and total knee component loosening where you have that increased inflammatory uh, activation in the area causing the osteolysis and the uh, subsequent component loosening. So those are some of the things where a bone scan um, can be used. And uh, I, I don't know if they'll exactly test you exactly what a bone scan uh, will be used to identify, but it, it will be part of the imaging where they'll show you yeah. a, a, maybe a, a older patient that has vague ankle pain, the x-rays look relatively normal. And rather than give you an MRI, they'll show you a hot lesion on bone scan. And you might be tempted to, to choose either neoplastic disease versus infection. And they may give you a ESR or a CRP or a low grade fever or something like that to kind of point you in the direction where they want to go. So just knowing what sort of conditions a bone scan may be used for will help you on uh, the OITE and ABOS. Yep. Yep. Very true. Very true. And I think, um, I think that kind of pretty much wraps up basic science um, for at least for this review series. One thing I just thought about is um, 
is at some point, and I'm I'm awful at this, so it's really going to be a bore studying and trying to learn all this stuff. But we'll have to talk about bio stats at some point, which I'm really I think that's that's the one thing I'm not looking forward to, <laughs> even more than talking about basic science. Um, but you know, at least we've gotten through basic science. We talked about a, a lot of stuff. We did a whole bunch of genetic diseases. We talked about like the bones. We talked about cartilage. We talked about um, you know all these different perioperative medications. I mean, we covered a lot. You know, yeah. basic, basic science stuff. Yeah, I I mean we've we've done more than what I was anticipating. I thought about basic science, and I was like, oh yeah, it's just a few things, and then. You go down this rabbit hole and, it, and it's never ending. So uh, uh, just a, a shout out to you there, Dr. Cole, and uh, and all the hard work you do for this, man. You're, you're really helping a lot of people out. Oh, man, that's, that's very nice of you to say. I appreciate it. And hopefully the people are learning something from, uh, from, our, from our ramblings and <laughs> hopefully they're getting, you know, some extra questions, right? Or even just learning, you know, some things that will help with patients later on, you know, because a lot of this stuff is, you know, we talked about like, you know, seeing a PE and knowing tachycardia and hopefully, you know, if you didn't know that before and you have a patient where this happens, you kind of at least know where to start at, you know, so. Yeah, 100%. And, um, and Dr. Wilwine, this has been a pleasure. Uh, we will continue on and we'll see whatever our next, uh, our next topic will be. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you all enjoyed it and learned a lot. We are continuing on with our basic science and actually, no, no, we are we are done with basic science and we are moving on to the next topic. I wonder if, what, take a wild guess of what you think it could be. And while you're formulating this thought, we will see you all next week for the next episode. <laughs>